0: In 1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with
1: it.
2: But St. John's was an anti-Confederate
3: headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap.
0: Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast.
3: Hey everyone, before we begin today's episode, we just wanted to say thank you to the new listeners and the longtime listeners. We really appreciate the way you've been sharing the show and all the messages over the past few months. So thanks again. And now, here's the show. Just a warning.
2: This episode contains strong language, because history does sometimes. The great law of peace governs the Haudenosaunee people. The key word in that sentence is peace. The Haudenosaunee are peaceful. But after 300 years of being pushed and pushed, of being told where they could live and how, of attempting to follow the laws of the French and then the British, in 1990, The Cunyukkahaga, or Mohawk as they are called in English, had had enough, and they pushed back.
3: I think that the crisis isn't the action that says, okay,
2: get your foot off my neck. I think it's the constant pressure of that foot on our neck is Mm -hmm. the crisis. It should have been dealt with decades ago. It really changed who we are. I think 1990, and I'm surprised, as a teacher, I use Oka as a defining point for Native people. And I'm surprised at how many of our young people don't remember what Oka was. And it's like, what? Oka? It was a huge
3: turning point. Anytime there's any kind of um, uprising of the people that are trying to protect land or water, you think about Oka, because for me, that was the first time in my life that I can remember Indigenous people unifying and standing up, you know, in the face of violence in the face of hatred. The stories that, you know, a typical Canadian has been given for decades upon decades, has been edited, has been, you know, systematically controlled, and it's been, you know, that official narrative. It's been crafted that way for a reason. It is about power and control and who has the right to do this and that to people. This is The Secret Life of Canada, podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Hey Leah. Hey Fallon. Okay, so today is the second part of our first two-part
2: episodes. Uh, well, I don't know if that yeah, I don't know if that makes <laughs> sense, but yeah, today it's a two-parter is what I'm trying to say. And what we've been talking about is what is commonly called the Oka Crisis.
3: Right. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to Ganesatake three hundred years later, you can find that in our feed. It's two above this one, right? Yeah. You got the superheroes, and then skip up one. You might want to take a listen to that before we move forward. Yes, but we'll
2: just give. A quick recap just you know of what we learned last time
3: i would appreciate that because to be honest i went on vacation as you know and by vacation i went nowhere because there's nowhere to go i watched all of the fast and the furious films which i'd never seen before they are incredible that's wow all of them how many are there if you're counting hobbs and shaw okay <laughs> maybe nine but i would have to go back and check it's a lot. I have no idea what you're talking about. We can talk about it later. So anyway, yeah, I do I they were great, but I need to rewire my brain. Okay. So okay. please go back over and just refresh my memory. So what
2: you need to know, very briefly, again, Mohawk people's territory stretched from upstate New York up and around what is now Montreal. Uh, The Mohawk people, they live in longhouses and they fished and they farmed and they hunted. And eventually when French colonizers showed up, they started to settle in the area around Montreal. Eventually, the French colonizers send over some French Catholic priests called Sulpicians and they start converting Indigenous people to Catholicism. So... As soon as all of these settlers start arriving, the territory is pretty disrupted, and the Ganyukahaga, they're pushed from place to place, and you know, from like basically wherever is seen as convenient by the settlers and the church. So eventually, this creates tension with the church, and there's a community set up at Lake of Two Mountains across the river from Montreal. This is ghana So. Once there, the priests start to sell land, the land at Gunasatage, the land that was promised to the Mohawk people. So rules and restrictions are placed on top of them and, you know, it prevents them from doing things like chopping wood to, you know, build houses or harvest firewood. So, the Ginyokahaga they protest the treatment that they are receiving from the priests, and you know, this goes on for years. After the Seven Years War, they formally appeal to the British to help them out, but their petitions are ignored. Tensions continue to mount until the 1900s, more and more settlers come over, more and more industry starts to occur on the land, the waterways are changed, and that puts more strain on the original people of the territory. And, you know, pressure continues to build and build as more settlers come onto the land and there's more and more industry. In the 1930s, the priests decide to peace out and they transfer the land to the government of Canada without the consent of the Mohawk people. The Kanyoka continue to resist and protest all of the development that's going on. But in 1959, a nine-hole golf course was built without the consent of the Mohawk people. And this is the Oka golf club.
3: Oh my gosh. Nicely done. Please take a sip of water. Yeah, I know, right? I'm like, okay. (laughs) And we're done, right? That's it. Okay. And good night. It was well done. I actually feel caught up. I'm enraged, engaged. I'm ready to go. So where are you going to take us to today?
2: We can't cover it all. You know, we cannot cover it all. But today what we're going to look at is what happened during the quote unquote Oka crisis and what happened after because
3: it's still very unsettled. Yeah, it's such a big, big story. It really is. So let's talk about this golf course. Yes. Speaking of golf courses, though, did you know that one of Reiko's cars in Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift was a Volkswagen Golf? <laughs> okay, that is this going to be a no, thing? in this movie because they always have these very, you know, kind of guy cars. But a Volkswagen Golf, it was It was a really great scene, but they actually deleted it out of the movie. And yes, I watched the deleted scenes as well. Anyway, golf course. <laughs> I don't know you. I, know I'm changing. I don't know you I'm anymore. Changing. Who are you? Okay, back to you? the golf course. Yes, I don't like golf. I like mini yeah, golf. We'll but we can it talk later. about all I'm fine all if of we skip that conversation. Later. Okay, Ganasatake.
2: Okay, so in the 70s, we see Mohawk communities, the Mohawk communities of Ganawage, Ganasatake, and Akwasasne presenting a joint land claim asserting Aboriginal title to the lands along the St. Lawrence.
3: I thought we didn't use aboriginal as a word really anymore. So I guess this is the 70s. It was a different time. So that was the word that they were using then. Well,
2: yeah. No, I, I'm glad you brought this up because it, it is complicated. Like when we look at the legalese and government terminology, mm-hmm. aboriginal title is the wording that is still prevalent when discussing these things, the legal things. Things are shifting now, but it's bureaucratic and it's slow. Right. Okay. The aboriginal title mm-hmm. will probably be called something different at some point, but For right now, we're going to use that word. So Aboriginal title ties back to the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and the Treaty of Niagara, which was created the following year. So
3: 1764. Nice math. <laughs> yeah, one year later. That's
2: I can add. Okay, so 1764. This is when King George III acknowledged that indigenous land and title existed and that the crown needed to purchase the land from official representatives before any settlers could be living on it.
3: I mean, yay King George for acknowledging something that I guess was yeah. I mean, you know, just, congratulations. They started breaking
2: that treaty immediately. Uh, immediately. But okay, yeah. so
3: this Thank, it's like a it's like
2: a really late I don't know addition <laughs> birthday card or something. You know?
3: Yeah. So this though is still the basis for treaties and a lot of land negotiations. And I'm guessing that this land claim did not go so well.
2: Yeah. So yeah, the claim was rejected because the federal government said that the Gnuukahaga had not been living on the land since time immemorial, and that Aboriginal title had been. Expired.
3: I'm already so mad when we're like (laughs) three minutes into this episode, but okay, okay. Uh, How did they decide that? Ridiculous. Okay, well, yeah, (laughs) you buckle up, Buttercup, (laughs) it gets worse. Okay, the government's
2: idea of what it means to live on the land is vastly different from indigenous worldview. My people, the Haudenosaunee, who, you know, the Mohawk are a part of that Confederacy, we didn't live in the way that settlers did and do. So it's a thing that we're always coming up against. Our people, we moved within our territory. We were an agricultural society, which meant that every 40 or 50 years, we would move from where we had settled to another place to allow time for the soil to replenish nutrients, right? So it just sometimes it feels like the government really wants us to have fences and borders in a really, you know, Eurocentric Western kind of way. And that's just, that's not who we are as a people. There was a case in 1997, D'Agamuk versus BC, which established the meaning of Aboriginal title. So it requires sufficient, continuing and exclusive evidence of territorial occupation. So this would become really important later on in a lot of land cases.
3: Right. I bet. Yeah.
2: So in 1977, the ganasatage band, they filed another land claim with specific regard to an area called the Commons, or as the Mohawk people called it, the Pines. This claim was accepted, but ultimately rejected, and the government states, they stated that the claim didn't meet key legal criteria.
3: Woo! I'm re- like, okay.
2: I know. I'm not a lawyer, but I, <laughs> but I don't think you have to be a lawyer to be you know deeply
3: frustrated at yeah to at be legal. annoyed by this stuff yeah yes. totally
2: yes okay so this piece of land the pines was this it's a forest and it's a cemetery as well that the mohawks had been using for a century perhaps even longer bumped up right next to the pines is the Oka golf club okay i get it i get it mm-hmm. yeah so you know It just doesn't feel right to begin with. And
3: Oka is a resort towner, you know, like... Would you say it's cottage country? Like, is that what we should be kind of envisioning? Kind of, yeah. Like, it's definitely got that
2: feel. Um, okay. You know, I think it's, its population in the summer swells and it goes down in the off season. OK, gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, in 1988, the Oka Golf Club, they had their lease renewed for another 35 years. And the following year, the club decided that they would expand the golf course and take it from a nine hole course to a full 18 holes. A luxury condominium unit was also proposed to be built. This expansion would be built over the pines and the cemetery, so it would encroach on that piece of land. Two years later, in March of 1990, the Mohawk people, as well as some of the government representatives, asked that the development be reconsidered. But the mayor of Oka, John Willett, gave the go-ahead for the development.
3: I mean, this sounds like a really bad move for the obvious reason that it wasn't Oka's land to play around with in the first place, you know?
2: Yeah, in the eyes of the government, Aboriginal title had been extinguished, so they saw it as fair game. But
3: also, had these people never seen a horror movie? Like, it always begins with someone building something or living in something built on a cemetery. Like, it's...
2: Yeah. This is the
3: beginning of the end, you know. So what did the Mohawk people do? Well, the Ganyukahaga
2: set up a peaceful protest site as a last resort, as an attempt to stop the development and protect the land and the bodies and bones of their ancestors. They blocked a small dirt road that led onto the site of the proposed development, and they prepared to fight for it, but only if they had to.
3: Okay, so we have the protest site set up. What happens next?
2: In April of 1990, a court injunction was put into place that orders the Ganyakahaga off of the land so that development can move forward. The Mohawks don't acknowledge the injunction, and in June, a second injunction is put in place. So many bad ideas. All the Mohawk people are like, mm-hmm, nice injunction. Who cares? Okay, yeah. great.
3: You can put in 45 injunctions. Yeah, go for it. We don't care. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, These injunctions, they just add fuel to the fire, and more people show up at the site to support. And this is when the warrior society starts showing up.
3: Okay, and who... Are they exactly?
2: So this is a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> okay, it's a group of Indigenous men who come to aid other Indigenous people and communities in times of conflict, especially when it regards territory. They were formed in the '70s. You have most certainly seen their flag. I know for a fact you've seen their flag. Uh, it's it hangs in our desk. It hangs it in does, our office desk. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yes, <laughs> and so. That flag that, yes, we have hanging in our cubicle at CBC, uh, it's a red flag with sort of yellow sunbeams coming out from the center and a man's profile in the middle of that. And he has what's called a scalp lock in. And the scalp lock is a specific hairstyle that was worn by Mohawk men during times of conflict. And so, you know, hair down means peace, scalp lock means time of war
3: it's actually really beautiful that you have that hung up I have a picture of Idris Elba on my side so like you went with something meaningful yeah I went with yeah. something meaningful to me yeah. you went with something bigger and yeah, it's very distracting me. <laughs> it is I probably like some of our listeners obviously have seen this flag as well at protests and rallies I mean it is known as the warrior flag or the unity flag
2: yes it was originally made by Lewis Hall Yogdaji years prior to 19 19- He made this flag, but it really became a symbol, you know, during conflicts. Um, there's actually another version of the flag with a woman in the center, which hmm. feels pretty on point. And they really were the leaders during what happened right. at Oka during 1990. Jessica Deer, a CBC reporter out of Montreal who just happens to be Gunyokahaga from Ganawage, she put together a really great article on the history of the flag, and we will link to that on our website. Okay.
3: Yes, to that. More women on flags, just generally. More women on everything. Yeah, Just yes. flags. yeah benches in the park <laughs> yeah. on whatever i don't know insert a woman here um that sounded bad actually you know what i meant i meant women in, pa- in places of power <laughs> <laughs> delete that tk delete that so we uh, so <laughs> no I'm it's not staying, i know staying. <laughs> i already knew as soon as i said okay, oh, wait, okay. all right Let's okay, so, so okay, we have this so, growing support for the peaceful protest site. They're trying to preserve the pines. The warriors then arrive. Now I imagine tensions are really high. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so I wanted to talk to two sisters who were at the site during the resistance at Ghanasatage. So um, maybe what I'll do, will first do is just get you both to introduce yourself.
1: Okay, I'm uh, Ganithio Horn, and I'm an actress from Ghanawage.
0: I'm Winnie Horn-Miller. I'm her older sister (laughs) and a highly retired Olympic athlete and mother of three from Kahnawaga, to and Oshwigan. There's not a beginning and an end. There's like a continuation, you know what I mean? I know that in 1968, around then, there was uh, like political activity and a fight against the first nine holes of the golf course. And our mom was involved with that. So, like, people don't know about that. They don't know that they tried to stop the first nine. So, like, for me personally, 1990 or the the Oka crisis was... It was about, like, I think just about our people being just so freaking tired of being pushed around, told what to do. I mean, we're Mohawks in a province that has the worst attitude towards Indigenous rights and Indigenous stuff as, you know, anywhere. And because we're seen as, like, a direct competition to French culture and French sovereignty, and so, like, we're just, like, a people who, like, you know, we're tough, we're mean, and we were sick of it. And I think that's how I saw sort of the attitude of a lot of people at that time. It was like the last straw.
1: Yeah, I have to agree. But also, I guess my view on the whole thing was I was... I was four, so like, it was a lot of my first memories. It was what I really experienced and like, especially looking back is all the aftermath. So for me in 90, I see it as, yeah, as my people just being sick of it, being, you know, pushed to the point of, you know, having to fight back that way. And also, like I said before, there's like, you know, there was a before and an after in my mind, anyways, it was a turning point,
0: I think. Like, what I find that people don't know about is, like, people associate, like, with Mohawks being super violent, super aggressive. And yes, we are, but they don't know that there was a three-month-long kind of peaceful blockade in the pines that didn't involve weapons or anything. And it was manned mostly by, like, dudas and their kids and their grandkids and stuff. And that's what was attacked on July 11th. And then all of the, you know, other stuff happened that you see all over the media, but they don't ever talk about how there really was a peaceful sort of spiritual blockade.
1: Yeah, it was the women who were attacked and then the men, then it became the, the really violent part.
0: <laughs> yeah. And we are like, we are a people based in peace. And, but you know, like our mama always talks about how, you know, we never given up an inch without a fight. And that's the way we are, right? And we're supposed to try every possible means to keep the
1: peace. That you do everything in your power to keep the peace until you're pushed to
0: a certain point. Then, you know, then it's war. (laughs) Yeah, like picking up weapons are the last, the last option, right? You know, we were brought up that way. I mean, there's a certain romanticism about like the Mohawk Warrior Society and warriors and all that. And I think that's been kind of like the last 30 years, you're seeing that really expand around the world. You're seeing the warrior flag at every blockade and everything around the world. And it's pretty, it's cool, but it's also like, do you know that we're supposed to be seeking the great peace, you know, in whatever way we can.
3: So peace is always the focus. Peace is really the goal.
2: Yeah. And it was unfortunately not in the cards. On June 30th, the Oka Town Council succeeded in winning a court order to have the roadblock at the proposed development site removed. The Quebec Superior Court ruled that the Mohawk land defenders were illegally preventing development.
3: Of a golf course and a condo. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, on July 10th, the mayor of Oka requested the provincial police, the Sûreté de Quebec, remove the barricade, saying in a letter,
3: We are counting on you to settle this problem without any further delays... Requests on our part.
2: They were from Quebec, so I don't know why you're doing a British accent, Leah, but that's. Oh
3: my god. I'm just so used to doing a British accent for everything on this show. I'm so sorry. Nope, Nope, that's. I honestly blame musicals. I watched too many as a kid. I mean, have you ever watched Les Mis? Master of the house. Dun da, dun da, dun dun Like they're all British in that. Yeah, no,
2: I know. I mean and and you know, I don't want to talk about musicals. We have what, very we have different, different opinions types. on okay. musicals. So So the Mayor says like get like mayor says like get mm-hmm. them out of there. Yeah. And so the Mohawks at the site they begin to prepare. And some of the men who are part of the Warrior Society, they had paramilitary training. Some had served in the US military and had even fought at Vietnam barbed wire, sandbags, logs, and barrels were used to fortify the site, and then they waited. More on that in a minute. In
0: 1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates
3: are not going to get away with it.
2: But St. John's was an anti-Confederate
3: headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap.
0: Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: On the morning of July 11th at 5 a.m., land defenders were just waking up at the resistance site. Breakfast was being cooked. A ceremony was being led by Elder John Cree. Tobacco was offered. As the Mohawk people prayed, they saw the Sûreté de Québec, or the SQ as they are commonly called, approach the site. They had gas masks and bulletproof vests on. They approached the barricade and asked to speak to a leader of the Mohawks. The women are the leaders in our Haudenosaunee communities, but for these men with guns, it didn't make sense. They wanted a man, and when one wasn't produced... They began to get frustrated.
3: So the women and not the warriors were at the front lines. I guess that is kind of unexpected for settlers.
2: Yeah, I think so. Ellen Gabriel, a Ganyukahaga negotiator who remains a key figure in all of the events surrounding 90, she had this to say about being on the front lines.
3: Our instincts kicked in and we said the women have to go to the front because it's our obligation to do that to protect the land, to protect our mother. And I remember looking at the faces of the SWAT team, and they were all scared. They were like young babies who had never met something so strong, who had never met a spirit, because we were fighting something without a spirit. There was no thought to it. They were like robots. Frustrations
2: continued to mount, and... Soon the SQ began deploying tear gas. The loud sounds of the tear gas canisters exploding woke up those still sleeping and alerted many at the site. They saw smoke, but they didn't know what it was, but it burned. Elder John Cree was asked to speak to the police as a spokesperson. He conveyed the message of the people to the police, that they wouldn't leave, that they would not give up the land. The police began to advance, firing more tear gas and then concussion grenades. A helicopter loomed overhead. Women and children were terrified and screamed, and then the gunfire began. CBC reporter Laurent Levine was on site reporting when he got caught in the crossfire and began choking on the tear gas. What is happening there? You can hear firing. I'm not sure if it's weapons or if it's. Yes, uh, it is. They're firing
3: at us. Uh, I can see. Them. I'm trying to get behind a tree, actually, and the tear gas is starting to come. But as you can hear, there's a semi-automatic <laughs> weapon fire. I now, is
1: this police firing or Mohawk firing? It
3: appears to be. I can't tell for sure where it's coming from, but it appears to be coming from the police lines, yes. They're not firing at people, but they're firing on the ground. I'm going to move back because the tear gas is getting to me. <clears throat> Sorry.
1: <clears throat> Laura, are you, are you able to continue?
2: Not right, All Sorry.
1: Okay, Laurent.
2: Take good care of yourself now. (laughs) Thank you. At the end of the exchange, Marcel May of the Sûreté de Québec was shot and taken away in an ambulance. He later died in hospital. At this time, the SQ began to retreat, leaving all of their police vehicles behind as well as construction equipment. Really? So they just left all their stuff? Yeah, the wind had shifted and the tear gas started to blow in the police's direction. And then an officer was shot, so they didn't know what to do, so they ran. The Mohawks saw the opportunity in front of them and they took it. They used those police cars and that construction equipment, a front loader, to fortify their barricades and to build more, including one on Highway 344. But again, this was just a last resort. The protest uh, or resistance was always meant to be peaceful. The community, the clan mothers, who, you know, they had been consulted about this, and this was the will of the people.
3: Yeah, I get that. But, you know, it's so clear to me now after literally hundreds of years of saying no and then sending armed police into the site who start attacking. It was like you have no choice by that point.
2: It was seen as an act of war. And, and you know, it was an act of war. If we are a nation and Canada is a nation mm-hmm. and that violence occurs between two nations, I don't know what else you would call that. Yeah. So protests begin springing up across the country in solidarity with the Mohawks and more people come to support the site and... Uh, some come from the nearby reserve of Gonawage and Akwesasne, but some come from as far away as the west coast and the east coast. Uh, here are the Horn sisters again talking about some of these alliances.
0: I mean, speaking about the keepers of the eastern door and like what also people don't know about, we called upon like some of our old, old treaty relationships with the Mi'kmaq people of the east. And they came, like a lot came. and. Every time I go to Mi'kmaq territory, my mom always says, you always honour that. You honour that we have these old, long-standing relationships to defend and help each other, like, in times of need. And I remember the the Mi'kmaq that came. They're often not kind of fixtures, main fixtures of sort of the, what people talk about, but... Um, they brought a lot of humor. <laughs> They're funny people. They're freaking funny people. And <laughs> and uh, and I do remember that. And I remember learning about those old treaties and all those old relationships, like hundreds and hundreds of years old, right? They still came. They still recognize that. And that's like there's something really like organic, like deep, like gen like genetic, like historical, like that they would come, you know, young Mi'kmaq people would come and support us, right? When we needed them. And that was amazing. And I always honor that. And they remember when I go out there and I talk about it, they're like, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, some of those relationships we have need to be remembered and they need to be honored.
3: So all of this sounds familiar, you know, like what's happening right now with Wet'suwet'en.
2: Yeah, it does. But it isn't just the allies showing up, unfortunately. There's a thousand police that show up in Oka and they begin to set up barricades around the town.
3: So you have police barricades and Indigenous barricades around those barricades.
2: Yeah, you can really see why some call it the barricade. Yeah, um, got you it. Know, yeah. yeah. So the same day of the attack, July 11th, the Mohawks of Kahnawake, they blocked roads on the reserve in support and solidarity of Ganassitake, including the Mercier Bridge. This bridge is a major throughway for people traveling in and out of Montreal. So this made traveling in the area and commuting really difficult and getting through all of the checkpoints. It could be a really horrible experience, especially if you were indigenous. But you didn't have to be because, you know, settlers even encountered police brutality. Hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. It's there's this an Alanis's film. There's this guy. He was a a white guy and he gets pulled. He got pulled out of his car with his son there. His like young son. And the police um, like pointed the gun at him. Um, and, like, just fucking with him, kind of, and then eventually lowered it to the ground and it went off. Oh, my God. And shot dirt up into his eyes. And there you just see this footage of this guy, like, crying, like, trying to hold it together beside his son as he recounts the story. And it's just like, it, because, yeah, anyway.
3: Just for people uh, who are interested, our next episode is going to be on the RCMP. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. Okay. so all of this is going on, police brutality. Yeah. I'm guessing tensions are rising quickly. Yes,
2: Yes. so nearby in Chateauguay, a mob of non-Indigenous people gather enraged and an effigy of a Mohawk warrior is burned while the crowd chants savages. And people cheer. You
3: no, know, I just can't imagine having that much rage over a golf course. I mean, I wonder how they would have felt if they were told, you know, hundreds of years ago by a bunch of priests to move out of their houses and never come back. And, you know, like this golf course seems so minuscule. Yeah. Compared yeah. to this hundreds of years. But I digress here.
2: The golf course becomes to represent so much more. And, you know, there's so much footage of all of these events. Um, It was nightmare inducing for me to revisit this stuff, but I think it's good that it exists. We'll also will link to um, some of this footage on our website. So all the listeners can have nightmares. You know, my gift to you. Yeah,
3: Can't wait (laughs) for it. Okay.
2: But, (laughs) you know. I think it's important to mention that this wasn't just an Indigenous versus non-Indigenous or settler conflict. You know, many settlers in the area, they were furious with the mayor of Oka. The Minister of Indian Affairs for Quebec had even sent a letter to the mayor of Oka, John Willette, prior to the raid on the Pines, asking him to postpone the development of the golf course indefinitely, stating that he felt that the people of Ghanasatage had been treated unfairly.
3: That... Is interesting. You know, I don't know a lot about this, but what I do know or what I've been told is very black and white. And by that, I mean, it's always presented in the media as the Mohawk people versus the settlers in Quebec. You know, it's very straight, cut and dry. So hearing that, hearing that there were some settlers, uh, some people in politics even going like, you know what, actually, we agree this is kind yeah. of, yeah. this isn't right. I just also think that's why everyone knows, you know, when you think of Oka, I think a lot of people think of the famous picture of the Mohawk warrior looking into the eyes of a soldier. But this story is so much bigger than that, but it always seems to get reduced to its most simplified Yeah, points.
2: Absolutely. Some of the women of Gonesetage went to see the pines after the attack on July 11th, and they saw bullet holes in the trees. Dark sap ran out of them. It looked like the trees were bleeding or that they had been crying. The trees had protected them and saved them from being shot. Some Mohawk people began to flee the area out of fears for their safety, while others were terrified to leave.
3: Oh, that hit me in the feels. I know there's something about the idea that the trees, you know, maybe because I really miss trees right now because I live in the city and I'm in a closet, but there's something so profound about that. Well, yeah.
2: Like, you know, this thing that they were there to protect had protected Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. And it's, you know, it does feel it has a weight to it. So in mid-August, Quebec Premier, he invokes the National Defense Act. Remember that old song in dance, Leo? We haven't talked about that Ooh. one in a while. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. He invokes the National Defense Act and asks that the Canadian military come in to replace the SQ. And so Prime Minister Brian Mulroney gives the go-ahead and the army takes control
3: oh, yes, what a great solution, the Army. They should have just called on Jessica Mulrooney to send everybody Instagram threats instead. But I guess it was 1990, so there was no Instagram (laughs) at this time. But you see what I'm saying. The Army is ridiculous. That is ridiculous.
2: Yes. Okay. so this is the thing, right? Okay. so the Mohawks much preferred the Army, which sounds, yes, it sounds very strange to say, but the SQ had done such a terrible job and the Army was like kind of a less terrible option, if that makes sense. Not Really? Okay, so yeah.
3: <laughs> okay. How do you so, mean?
2: The SQ they had a reputation of being really racist. Right. There are accounts of them kidnapping and assaulting Indigenous women. It was actually in the news just in the fall. So you know, they don't have a good relationship. Okay, I got and you. So now. I yeah, got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay. So. Thousands of soldiers, they show up to replace the SQ, and the army comes in with tanks and helicopters and, you know, all the bells and whistles, and the army announces that it's going to remove all the barricades, and on August 29th, the people of Gonawage, out of fear for their safety, they evacuate. Everybody gets the hell out of there. They cross the Mercier Bridge, and there they are met with a furious mob who throw rocks at the caravan of Mohawks leaving. And this event is actually, like, one of the worst things I've ever seen. It's all caught on tape. Angry settlers hurling rocks at cars carrying women, children, and elders. And all the while, they're spewing hate at the Mohawks fleeing, right? Like, just screaming racist stuff. And unfortunately, an elder who was in one of the cars, he had a heart attack while they were fleeing. uh, And he
3: later died. Oh my god, Phelan, it's so terrible.
2: Yeah, this event is really well documented in Alanise Obomsawin's documentary, Rocks at Whiskey Trench, which is viewable on the NFB site, and we will also link to that on our website. It's a really hard thing to see, but I do think it's really important, you know, and it looks so familiar to what's happening in a lot of places in the world right now.
3: You know, we do these history things and we talk about 1763 and 1844 and 1920. This is 1990. It's not 100 years ago. It's so recent in our history, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. So Alanis oh when she's an Algonquin filmmaker, and she's made a few docs on what happened during the resistance at Gunasatage. And they're also all available. We'll link to those as well. There's so much. There's a never-ending Listen, we are thread send of a, things to look at. You're going to get all the
3: links, people. Like, go to our website, 700 links. But, yeah, we'll, yes. we'll put them all up there.
2: And so inside the site at Gunasatage, the Ginyokahaga land warriors, They're struggling to get supplies into the site. Food is being tampered with. It is stabbed and destroyed. Cigarettes are cut off. And this was the 90s, right? So everybody smoked. Even I smoked. That is a deep cut. Yeah, I know, right?
3: You love talking about your rebellious, like, teenage smoking days. God.
2: I know. That, it makes me sound so old, too.
3: <laughs>
2: we are old. Okay, I continue smoked. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, so, yes, there are many accounts of what happened outside of the reclamation site. Right. You know, we see all the news footage and the reports like it's unending, the things that you can find, the rabbit holes you can go down on the Internet. But the thing that people weren't seeing, you know, in the news and in the media was what was happening inside the camp at Gunasatage. The people who were in there, they were relations and friends. They, you know, they were women and children. There was singing and ceremony and, you know, indigenous people from across the country were there in solidarity. There was even a wedding.
3: That's nice. And I mean, this is what I'm talking about with that warrior, you know, versus the soldier image. It's like I've never heard about that. I've never heard that there was, you know, just this coming together and this celebration and ceremony in a way.
2: Yeah, I found this documentary um, called Oka Canada. Mm-hmm. And it was all in it, footage from inside the site. And so that was like quite beautiful to see, you know. And there was like a lot of things that were happening that the land defenders were doing to mess with the police. Like they would fill up condoms with water and throw it at them. Yes. There were pranks happening during all of this. So it's like, yes, it it's a serious thing and it's a complicated thing. But I think, you know, our humor, our humor was there. Our humor... Never left us, and I don't think ever really does, because it's part of survival.
3: It's what gets you through. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. As the days passed, tensions and racism continued to mount. People, Indigenous and non, were stopped at checkpoints, and there was a lot of violence. One Mohawk man had this to say.
3: We were going to buy food in Montreal. The army stopped us, and the SQ took our identification. They dragged me out of the car and shoved me into the back of a cruiser. They transferred me to a police car and again shoved my face on the floor so I couldn't see where I was going. We stopped at a building in the woods and they showed me a photo of a masked man in the pine woods holding a gun. They said it was me. I denied it. They called me a dirty Indian bastard. They put a shotgun in my ear and made me crawl on the floor and called me a dog. For the next two and a half hours, they took turns beating me. They took off their heavy shoes and put on sneakers so the marks wouldn't show as bad. They said they were going to blow my brains out. The man signed the confession
2: after being in custody for over six hours. He was charged and let out on bail.
3: I don't know what to say. Yeah, I know. There's...
2: And again, there's... It just feels like this moment there was a a different thing happening, you know, with media and the news. And, you know, they had reporters inside the reclamation site, inside the site. And so there's accounts from so many perspectives. And I think that was something that was unexpected for the Canadian government Mm. and the Canadian military and the police. But,
3: I mean, I think you mentioned it in the first episode off the top that... This was a different time because there was now 24 hour news. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they had to fill up that time. Mm -hmm. And that's what ends up happening is you get more footage.
2: Yeah. This is, you know, 1990. This was the beginning. That's what was on the TV.
3: So what else like what else was going on?
2: I mean, there was another horrible act of violence occurred at the site when um, one of the warriors, he fell asleep. In the woods and a couple of soldiers crawled under the barbed wire and went in and beat him so badly that like his face was unrecognizable uh, and he had to be sent to the hospital. Oh my God! In late August, the Mohawks of Kahnawake agreed to reopen the Mercier Bridge uh, and it would take a week to clear that barricade. In September, the army advances on the site, the reclamation site, and the land defenders pull back into a healing lodge. It's known as the Treatment Centre or the TC.
3: This is a space where negotiations with government officials had been held. It becomes the base for the remaining land defenders.
2: Yes. On September 25th, in the House of Commons, Prime Minister Mulroney says he will meet some of the Mohawk's demands. And the following day, on September 26th, 30 warriors, 16 women, 6 children exit the treatment center, much to the surprise of the army. Chaos and violence ensued, and 14-year-old Winnie Horn was stabbed by a soldier's bayonet while she carried her sister, Gonadio Horn.
3: So I've seen this picture. This is also a very famous picture that gets shared a lot. During this time of um, Dio in her sister's arms and they're falling to the ground. And Mm -hmm. I think what I didn't understand was that that act of violence happened. Like all of these things happened over time, like over weeks and weeks. Like, again, when you're just looking at these pictures, it looks like everything happened at once right soldiers are staring at mohawk warriors and people are punching and stabbing yeah. people and so
2: and it's three months and that's like three months of them you know being sort of you know really confined to that space with their food being tampered with with you know like their phones were cut off mm-hmm. um press pulled out there were some members of the press who stayed but you know the majority of the press was not in the area anymore right i mean and like, look at what suit and like, look what happened at Unistaten, and like earlier this year, right? Or uh, late in 2019. Like, it's the same. Mm-hmm. It's the same stuff. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's just keeps happening over and over again.
3: It's ongoing. It's yeah. ongoing. So some of the warriors
2: who have come out of the site, they are they're detained and they are charged by the SQ. Um, and five were convicted with one serving jail time. But a statement had been made To the world, a change was stirred inside Indigenous people. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't defeat. This was not defeat. Mm -hmm. The world was watching Canada, this, you know, great nation, this great peacekeeping nation. The world saw how they treated its Indigenous people. Now, when Indigenous people defend their territories, people think back to July 11th, 1990. The country was never the same after that day, and I don't think it should be. Solidarity counts for a lot. And I think the Oka crisis, the barricade, 1990, whatever we want to call it, it changed a lot. And we have to remember those lessons.
3: Yeah, I think I realize now that it was that moment that a lot of people who live through a great change in history have seared into their mind. I now realize that, that that's what this moment was for many indigenous people all across North America. I get that now. Yeah. So I wanted to
2: ask the Horn sisters what things were like around Gonawagi and Gonasatagi in Montreal after they had walked out of the treatment centre that day.
0: I remember the months and years after the crisis. And I remember the pain and I remember the self-medication. I remember the people dying. Like I remember there was a lot of deaths afterwards and of people who had lived through it and were struggling And then you had like the onslaught of the SQ and the RCMP just kind of like, I remember you could go over the Mercier Bridge and come down towards our mom's house. There'd be like five cars on each side of the road being pulled over, giving like $500 tickets for a dirty license plate. Like we were being, you know, harassed for what had happened because we made them look bad. And then like I was in grade 11, like graduating high school at survival school. And like Friday night, you know, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I think I'm going to go stone some cop cars. You know, <laughs> like it's just a normal thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Regular, everyday stuff that was happening. Like, can you imagine growing up and seeing that kind of anger and hate? And, the, like, our mom being in court and all the people that were at TC being in court and, like, going to court all the time. And it was absolute chaos. And our community was
1: hurting. But, and we like, still are. And even when yeah. the whole blockade happened... Uh, just recently in Ganawake, and then Lego said that we, you know, might have AK-47s and we're all armed. I remember going to the town meeting and people were like, you know, legitimately triggered. Like, we're still suffering from it, you know? There's a, It was very, very traumatic for all of us, and I mean, of course, we're, you know, we're still like Mohawk, and we're still proud and everything. Like, yeah, fucking A, we did that, but
0: It would be hard, though. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, like, Um, the younger generation that weren't even alive at the time, like look at the older generation. It's like, you know, we, we have controversy in our communities about a lot of things and we're pretty hard on each other. And it's like, well, you got to remember what we lived through. And like, I remember, you know, okay, there's certain emotions that you can show. You can show anger. You can show frustration. You show aggression. You can, don't you dare cry. Mm -hmm. Don't you dare show anything that is weak. And afterwards, you don't show weakness. And I remember like, even when we were high school students and playing like basketball and stuff, trying to go out and play, this is like months after the Oka crisis. I remember whole school just like attacking us, playing like basketball, just yelling racial slurs, these high school students. And it was just like, you just got tougher and harder and harder and harder. I don't think we even knew what PTSD was because when you live in an entire community and everybody is kind of living it, you're just like, Oh, yeah. Oh, this yeah. is normal. Oh, this you mean is normal. You,
1: you guys don't hate that hard out here?
0: You don't hate <laughs> like, that hard? Or like, and, and, and I that- think there's
1: still older, I, you know, I remember speaking to some older people who were in the treatment center with us, and one woman was like, I just figured out that I have PTSD, you know? And she's like an older woman. Like, she was, I think, in her 20s during it, but, you know, people are just kind of figuring this sort of thing out 30 years later.
0: If Oka had not happened in such a, Violent way, you would not have the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. Suddenly, you know, in the academic world, things completely changed because of the Oka crisis. You know, and then you had Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and then you know the the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. All of them built, built, and built. Right. I think what Oka is is always the threat, and it's always the worst case scenario. And people can always go back to that. Like every time, even the recent stuff like Wet'suwet'en, you know, and all that kind of stuff, they will always, you'll see pictures pop up of like the Yoka crisis, right? Mm. And um, it's true. It's they're being absolutely true. But now, like what I think, what I look at is like over the last 30 years, I put the onus back not so much on the indigenous like activists and stuff. I'm like, okay, Canadians. So now you've, you've been woken up. You've had your eyes opened. So what does it mean to be Canadian to you? Like, what does it mean? You can't feign ignorance and you can't pretend this stuff doesn't happen. And I always ask that question. What does it mean to you be Canadian? Does it mean that over 100 communities don't have clean drinking water? Does it mean that Indigenous women have more of a chance of going missing and being murdered? Does it mean our people like I ask these questions and I'm like, I put the onus back on Canadians to say, I want you to really think about what it means to be Canadian. And I, I really want it to be a possibility one day that Canada is the best place on earth for people, all people to live. But it we're not there yet. We're not there. We're not there by a lot. Mm-hmm. And we need to work at it. And I'm and I always say I'm willing to work at it with you. I'm willing, really, I'm willing, and that's what I'm here. You know, I'm here to to try to achieve that, right? So for me personally, that's where it's at. That's where I'm at. It's like I have three kids now, and I'm like what does their future look like? And would I ever want them to be, you know, where Ganyadio was or where I was? Never. I would, I'll do everything I possibly can to make sure that doesn't happen. But is it always a possibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that kind of sits in the back of my mind as something that is a bit it scares me and it it causes me anxiety, you know, like mm-hmm. it's like I've bundled up all those memories and I've stuck them in a box and put them in my subconscious. And and some days when I, they leak out or they seep out or like I start going, then we text each other or we call each other.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm freaking
0: out, man. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel this way
1: too? Oh my God. You know, like,
0: and it's like, you know, and I remember walking into the opening ceremonies at the Olympics and, you know, and doing all that. And I remember being like, the first thing I said was. F you, man, you soldier who stabbed me. You thought you could own me. You thought you could kill me. You thought you could own my own my soul and my spirit and my dreams. Well, F you. Like, that was my biggest success, you know? Like, it's always there. It's kind of always on our shoulder.
1: You know, like, people talk to me and Wanique all the time. We don't, like, seek the spotlight or anything. And when I talk about being four years old there and when Winnie talks about being 14 and what she went through i feel like i represent all the kids that went through it you know
0: yeah the thing yeah. is i don't i i i will never say i speak on behalf of anybody like you i always say like you may hear yeah. other people have similar experiences but this is how i saw it mm-hmm. and like it was an absolute shock to my system that this was happening like to see race riots to see them firsthand Where you're sitting there watching it, you're like, what the hell? You know, and it's terrifying. And we all point our fingers at the United States and, you know, all this stuff that happens. But, like, that shit happens, like, on the daily in Canada. Mm. Okay? So, like, don't think it doesn't happen today, 30 years ago, you know? And if we're not careful, and if we don't figure out what the heck we want in this country, like, it's so easy. It's sad to say, but it seems that people fall back into that.
2: There's still a lot of healing happening at Ganawage and Ganasatage, and nothing in terms of the land has really been solved. Things pop up in the news about Ganasatage all the time. Just last year, someone wanted to repatriate land to Ganasatage, which kicked up racism in the area. The reserve at Gonasatage is incredibly fragmented and the wounds of 90 are still very very present. It was a sacrifice. The land defenders made a sacrifice and it cost. But you know I have to say, if anyone tries to take indigenous land, tries to develop on it without consultation and consent, you can be damn sure that the Gunyokahaga will be there and we will fight. We are ready. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee.
3: (laughs) That's but right. Big ups to Tony. <laughs> yeah. Yay!
2: The Wendat and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It's written and hosted by me, Phelan Johnson. And me, Leah Simone Bowen. Our producer is TK Matunda. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by
3: Andrea Eidinger. And the CBC Archives. Our digital producer is Fabiola Melendez Carletti. The senior producer of CBC Podcast is Tanya Springer. And executive producer is R.F. Nurani.
2: Special thanks to Gonadio Horn, Winnie Corn miller Kevin Loring, Naomi Johnson, and Herbie Barnes. And a short correction. In part one of this episode, we credited Lena Nichols, which should have been Lena Nicholas. We got an email about that, so I just wanted to put that correction in there. To learn more about this episode, you can check us out on our website, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Secret Life of Canada. If there's a story or a piece of history you want to tell us about, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca.
3: And rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. For more CBC podcasts, go to
0: cbc.ca/podcasts.